Good evening. The Supreme Court hears arguments on gay marriage, World AIDS Day, 40 years since. What have we learned about the disease that's killed tens of millions? Another climate conference, but is anyone listening? Guns on the Lower East Side and clarity on a plan to sweep up the mentally ill against their will. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Monday, December 5th, 2022. Legislation ensuring same-sex and interracial marriages are recognized as legal unions appears headed for final approval and President Joe Biden's signature. The measure, protecting the rights of about half a million married couples, passed the Senate last week and heads to the House for certain approval. The legislation says state governments must recognize legal marriages regardless of the individual's sex, race, ethnicity, or national origin, allowing people to sue to enforce those rights. The measure comes 25 years after a bipartisan majority passed the Defense of Marriage Act, defining marriage as one woman and one man. By 2015, that law was deemed unconstitutional, paving the way for gay marriage. Interracial marriage has been recognized since a 1960 Supreme Court decision known as Loving v. Virginia and validated state laws prohibiting marriage between people of different races. The law comes after a conservative majority on the Supreme Court overturned a 50-year decision legalizing abortion and warnings by justices that gay marriage could be next. In related news, the Supreme Court heard arguments on Monday in a case where a Christian graphic artist objected to designing wedding websites for gay couples. Conservatives on the court sounded sympathetic to the designer's argument that she had a First Amendment right to turn down gay people. But Liberal Justice Sonia Sotomayor says if the court rules for the designer, it would open the door to more discrimination. You're saying, I don't want to serve a particular person, a disabled person, a black and white couple, a disabled couple, a, uh, a gay couple. You're basing it not on the nature of the message, you're basing it on who you're serving. That's, I don't think that's a fair characterization. The stipulated facts in this case are that Ms. Smith has LGBT clients. She serves them regularly. She has all kinds Tell of clients. Tell me how that's different, by the way. What you're basically saying is in our uh, Oleg barbecue case, um, the company there said, I'll serve blacks, but only on a takeout window not inside my restaurant, because that sends a message that I endorse integration. Ms. Smith isn't looking to send a message through her conduct. What you're saying is, I want to give gay couples a limited menu, not a full menu, just the way that luncheonette said. No, just as this court found in Hurley, she's being asked to shape her speech by a third party. And it's, again, it's about what messages she is creating. And all these barbecue, yeah, they were engaging. When I sit down to eat a meal by a full chef who creates this beautiful picture on a plate, why can't he say, I make specialized meals for my clients. I will not serve a black person I want to serve a disabled person because they can't appreciate fully what I'm creating. That's basically what you're saying. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman appointed to the court, asked whether a photography store in a shopping mall could refuse to take pictures of black people on Santa's lap. 
And December 1st was the 34th annual World AIDS Day, an international day dedicated to raising awareness of the AIDS pandemic. Caused by the spread of the HIV virus, Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, or AIDS, has killed as many as 50 million people. The exact number can never be known, with nearly 40 million living with the disease. In New York City, dozens of activists held a vigil in March to commemorate the day. Advocates, including members of ACT UP and several elected officials, were in the crowd. AIDS activist Valerie Reyes Jimenez has been living with AIDS since the 1980s. Her doctors at the time told her she wouldn't live two years, but advances in treating the disease has extended the life expectancy of folks with the currently incurable illness. Reyes Jimenez spoke with the news about the advances and the challenges. We are in a better place than we were 40 years ago. There is some hype to it, but I really do believe that we can end AIDS as an epidemic. We can bring down the number of AIDS and HIV cases that are current, and we can become less and less to the point where we can end this epidemic even without a cure. Will it be cured? Who knows? We're 40 years down the road, and there isn't a a successful vaccine the way there is for COVID, which, you know, happened within a couple of years. Even without a cure, it's something that could be preventable. Then if every single person were to be tested for HIV, we would know who's positive and who isn't, who needs treatment, who doesn't, who could prevent the virus from going forward. And we can really make an impact in how this disease is spread. Is there still a problem with the stigma? Yes. If we think about now, you know, people that go around coughing and have COVID, it's like, oh my goodness, get away, right? There's still like a fear about that. So yeah, there's stigma definitely attached to HIV because what are people afraid of? are things that they don't know about or things that really just are not part of their daily lives and stuff. People are afraid and yeah, there is stigma attached to it, period. Do we still have those situations like like the child who was uh, mistreated in his school famously in the 1980s when it turned out he had gotten HIV Uh, through a... Ryan White, yeah, through blood transfusion. Although, you know, blood transfusion transmission is less, there's a ban on gay men giving blood to blood banks, which is ridiculous. There's stigma attached to that. So mm. if a person is young, if a person is trans, there's all kinds of fear and stigma attached to it. By the way, I will say that we haven't had a HIV positive person born in the United States in a, in a number of years because we've gotten that much better at uh, testing and treatment. And we can only test and treat when people are in care. So most women, once they're pregnant, they're, you know, they're in care. And part of the routine testing is to test potential mothers for HIV. We can prevent a problem from happening. Although AIDS was at first categorized as GRID, or Gay-Related Immune Deficiency Syndrome, it was discovered to affect more than gay men. AIDS was found among needle drug users and prostitutes. The stigma associated with the disease and conspiracy theories surrounding AIDS contributed to a slow response. And raised him and his ads, one of the problems was misinformation. Even ACT UP was put together by a group of gay, white, affluent gay men, right? The process is that 
as the it was other populations that were also infected, the people who are black and Latino weren't as affluent, weren't as educated, weren't living in houses. They were living in the projects. The lifestyle is certainly different. Access to information is not what you would get if you were highly educated. I myself was a high school dropout, but I made myself learn about these things because it was part of my life. And if I had to tell you who helped to save my life, it weren't gay white men. They might have opened the door, but it was women. It was straight women, lesbian women, junkie women, homeless women, and some badasses that were some white women that knew what to do and how to guide us. Those are the people that kind of opened, like the door might have been kicked open by the gay white men, but some of us managed to kind of put our foot at the door and let it, you know, like, don't don't shut the door on us because we're here and we're not going to go away. But unfortunately, not everyone has access to the information that I had is able to go around and I have no area in saying that I'm HIV positive. You know, if someone has a problem with me being HIV positive, well then guess what? You have a problem. You know, as far as I'm concerned, everyone has an HIV status. You're either positive or you're negative. And if you're negative, you can't spread the virus if they stay negative, right? And if you're positive, you cannot spread the virus if they're undetectable, because we know now the science tells us that if you're undetectable, you're untransmittable. If you're negative, then it's your job to stay negative. We all have a job. It's not about the people who are positive. We have to protect the person who is negative. It's like everybody's responsible for their own sexual being and their own sexual health. I shouldn't be penalized for having sex with someone and that person then finds out I mean, it would never happen for me because I, I just, I wouldn't even have sex with you unless I told you I was positive. But not everybody lives that way, you know? It's up to everyone to have their own way of protecting themselves, regardless, mm. period. Because HIV is one of the problems you can get. There's plenty of other crap out there that you can catch. Misinformation yeah. and disinformation because and I can understand why people would feel this way, but feeling, especially in the black community, that this was... Mm-hmm germ warfare aimed at black people and that HIV causing AIDS was part of a, a conspiracy that... And you're absolutely right. We're living in an age of conspiracy theories. When COVID hit the mainstream world, everybody was kind of like, oh my goodness, it was created in a lab over there in, you know, in China. Look what happened to that. It became the China virus or whatever it was. Stupid stuff like that, that kind of perpetuates ignorance and stupidity. Ignorance can be cured. But stupidity sure as hell cannot. I will say that fighting with people with HIV and AIDS is something that I've done from the very beginning, right? And I'm not about to stop now. Ignorance, hate, stigma, HIV criminalization, and the horrible information, misinformation that is out there, that's our biggest enemy. We have to learn how to be more proactive instead of reactive. We're living in an age of conspiracy theories and outrageous headlines. We're really living in an age right now where there's an upsurge in mental health and substance use issues, including crystal meth and opioid usage. That's affecting people living with and affected by HIV and AIDS. But that's just a subgroup of people that are affected by some of the stuff that's going on. 
but it just perpetuates creating even more barriers to care. And a lot of us found that out during COVID when people were trying to get into hospitals and get care and they couldn't because the hospitals were overburdened. We also noticed that the people who were getting care and getting access to vaccines first were not people of color. That's a fact and that is true. And we're starting to see like how screwed up our healthcare system is. AIDS activist Valerie Reyes Jimenez. With medical advances, AIDS has become a chronic disease, less apt to be fatal. Throughout the world, it's possible for a person with AIDS properly treated to live a full life. More than half the people with AIDS in the world are women. And here in the United States, white nationalist and Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes was caught throwing his drink at a couple inside a burger joint in Los Angeles over the weekend. Fuentes, a 24-year-old fascist social media influencer, gained notoriety after accompanying Kanye West to a dinner with Donald Trump at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. In the video, a woman is heard saying as she filmed the white nationalist, it's Nick Fuentes. He pretended that it wasn't him, but it's really him. He pretended that it wasn't him, but it's really him. What the f***, Nick Fuentes? You racist? Trump has denied he knew Fuentes or his views about Jews and the Holocaust. After the dinner, West, who calls himself Ye, expressed admiration for Nazi leader Adolf Hitler. And over the border to our northern neighbor. Police in Montreal are preparing their biggest security operation in 20 years as 10,000 visitors arrive for the COP15 Global Biodiversity Summit. The UN Biodiversity Conference aims to negotiate a set of global goals over the decade. It was meant to take place two years ago in China, but COVID restrictions there led to the move to Montreal. Authorities say they're expecting demonstrators with protests planned for Wednesday and Friday. But will the COP15 summit really change anything? Author Victor Wallace has written numerous books, including Red Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism. He says these echo events are becoming publicity stunts for oil companies. One of the aspects that I think is least talked about is the effect on the oceans. And the heating of the oceans leads to more of the uh, disappearance of the oxygen from within the water so there's a deoxygenation in the oceans. There's also the tremendous pollution of the oceans and the, and the military interference with marine life. One of the most important writers who talks about this continuously is Vandana Shiva from India, and she's especially critical of the capitalist approach to agriculture. Bill Gates just recently became the largest owner of agricultural land in the United States. And he, of course, has a kind of sledgehammer approach to agriculture based on genetic modification and massive fertilizers and all these artificial things, which sort of destroy the natural diversity, the species diversity in agriculture, in the farming process or in the natural world, because that, of course, depends on forest life and insect life. And instead of having multiple pesticides, you could have integrated pest management as it's known. Organic agriculture is part of that. And the move toward organic agriculture, it's important that it uh, continue to spread throughout the world for restoring the soil, 
reintegrating the, the carbon, uh, taking it out of the atmosphere and putting it in the soil where it belongs, where it's part of life. Whole nations are being swamped and whole cultures and whole peoples are being forced to be removed to different places. Yeah, that's true, especially in Brazil, where there's been this assault on the Amazon forest. I hope we'll come to an end with Lula, but they've wrought tremendous destruction already, and of course it threatens their way of life, and they have established over the millennia a kind of harmonious relationship with the forest, which is essential in terms of the oxygen supply and also the moisture equilibrium of the whole world. We could lose plant species and animal species that could have given us a deeper understanding and even medicinal discoveries that would be missed if we lose these plants. There's a huge variety of species in the Amazon, and, and there's still types of herb and medicinal things that are may be there that are not yet known. The farmers in India have had their lives completely ruined by the expansion of agribusiness. I want to focus on the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution was based on the idea of having these powerful seeds chemical inputs, converting farming to agribusiness, and thereby favoring single crop production over vast areas instead of the varied vegetation that's possible when you have the smaller plots and the small farmers. Once you get the massive plantations, you get the infestations, which then they treat with pesticides instead of having the natural balance that can be arrived at on the basis of having the predators consume them. And the predators may be other insects, they may be birds, which don't have a home in that kind of setting. And the effect, of, although it, it increased production in a kind of narrow, immediate sense, it was all for the capitalist market. It was at the expense of those who depended on the land for subsistence. It increased the production, but yet increased also at the same time the poverty. What lesson people should take about how climate change has had such broad-based effects on our planet? It's a true emergency. This doesn't mean that we know exactly when it'll hit everybody. It doesn't hit everybody at once, but it's already hit millions of people in a very dramatic way, like in Pakistan most recently. In order to address this problem, we have to be ready to make profound changes in the structure of power in the society. That's the absolute essential. I talk about it in detail in my book, Red Green Revolution. Do you have much faith the UN through these COP25 and COP15, it seems like they're coming and going every other day, are going to make a difference? The COPs that I've followed, the 26th and forthcoming 27, seem clearly not to have accomplished anything positive, and especially the places they're holding them now are, are indicative of that fact. They want to be sheltered from the population. There are conventions for the oil industry, and the oil industry is represented at those cops by hundreds of lobbyists. They have an effect in limiting the kind of agenda that's possible. Victor Wallace has written numerous books, including Red Green Revolution. The COP15 opening ceremony is on Tuesday, attended by Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Negotiators are already meeting in Montreal on the final agreement setting biodiversity targets called the Global Biodiversity Framework for the next decade. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In local news, New York City's gun buyback program hit the Lower East Side on Saturday. The walk-in program took place at a Baptist church on East 7th Street in Manhattan. Police spent six hours exchanging $200 gift cards and an iPad for any gun, no questions asked. It was the third buyback in Manhattan, and District Attorney Alvin Bragg was there to describe the process. We are fortunate to have this here today 
they're doing this as far as I can tell almost every Saturday throughout the city uh, and really do have it down to a method that keeps us all safe obviously bringing someone bringing in a gun and we, we ask that they be unloaded we ask to be packaged in a certain way that's not always the case and so we're here in a house of faith for the reasons we we know it and we also have our law enforcement it needs a gun experts and that keeps everyone safe so there's basically three kinds of firearms on the table there are assorted semi-automatic firearms which have a magazine and are self-loading we have a few revolvers which have a revolving cylinder uh, and then one derringer which is just holds two shots and but again like the da said this is the kind of stuff that you're going to see uh when you talk about gun violence right and there's no bb guns today no uh, starter guns these are all real legitimate handguns is this unusual number or less or more than average sometimes we get a lot of bb guns and things like that so i'd say when you're talking about uh, legit pistols this is right in the average we also have ghost guns which don't have any serialized numbers which i want to mention but if you are obliterate the serial number you are making it far more challenging from a law enforcement perspective so it's that's why i mentioned it because it's significant 16 guns were turned in on Saturday, including 10 semi-automatics, 5 revolvers, and a Derringer. 136 firearms have been turned in this year in the borough. The buybacks may be working. The NYPD says shooting incidents in the city are down 13%, although crime overall is up 15%. Alvin Bragg is the first African-American to hold the DA post. He came under fire from Republicans as soft on crime, but Bragg was elected with more than 80% of the vote. In related news, Mayor Eric Adams has been touting his plan to forcibly hospitalize unhoused, mentally ill people who refuse to go to shelters. But at a news conference on Monday, Adams was asked if the city had enough beds. There are 50 beds now available, but the need could be in the thousands. We are going to always need more beds and we're going to adjust. The starting point was for us to say we're not accepting this anymore. And now we're getting professionals all over the country who are reaching out to us and say, we want, we want to help. And we believe there are some real solutions to deal with the bed issues. There's some real solutions to deal with the hospitals. And we're going to start implementing and rolling those out. We know this is a Herculean task. We know that. We know there's a challenge. Uh, we're well aware of that. But the team made a real decision. We're going to face this head on. And D.A. Bragg, who says he wasn't consulted by the mayor before he announced the plan, adds the devil is in the details. To see how things are sort of effectuated, we have in the D.A.'s office in the past partnered with community-based organizations and sort of navigators to connect people with services, believe deeply in connecting people with services. I talked about our gun work, the grants as prevention, and then the enforcement work. I see this in two buckets as well. The, anything we can do to connect people with services before, I mean, the way we've done that in the DA's office in the past and through our funding of forfeiture funds is doing that through community-based organizations. We really want to continue to sort of invest in that type of work. So the best case for us is the case we don't have to bring. And then for people who do become justice involved, working with our partners in the courthouse 
and our service providers to expand our, our capability. I've been saying since the beginning of the year, our mental health court has a capacity by contract of 50 slots at a time. The docket in the tens and tens of thousands is just not adequate, as the assembly member said. Also, then when we scale up diversion and we want to have an alternative incarceration that includes mental health treatment, we have to make sure that we have got the capacity in the system. And as we have been expanding that this year, uh, we've seen the, the, the limits of the system. Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg. Meanwhile, Mayor Adams says his plan to sweep the mentally ill off the streets has brought clarity to the situation. What we found based on being on the ground, the lack of clarity. Our police officers and others, our hospital personnel, our um, outreach workers, there was this, this sense of lack of clarity. And so what I did is state, let me give everyone clarity of what the mission is um, from the city. Now, if we transport someone to the, um, to the hospital and they don't need additional care, we're going to put them on the pathway to um, our shelters. We're going to put them on the pathway of support services that are there. We need to be in engaging in those who need help. And the only way we could do that is to do a real diagnosis of their needs and give them the support that they need, and that's the follow-up of that they need. New York City Mayor Eric Adams. And with the growing epidemic of opiates and methamphetamine abuse, politicians representing the Lower East Side say they're looking for a humane alternative to arresting drug users, especially those shooting up in Tompkins Square Park. Assemblymember Harvey Epstein says the focus is on a few bad actors. Last year we legalized marijuana. Two days ago we found our first 36 marijuana dispensaries in New York State. Uh, there'll be some, I think four of them are going to be in Manhattan. What we need to do is for the, all the illegal establishments, we need to do work with our local enforcement agencies to get those off the street and make sure that we have safer legal drugs that are available to people. And we also need to do things to help people to ensure that if they need treatment programs, they need more beds. We put an extra 200, additional 200 beds in the budget this year for people who needed mental health support as well as drug prevention. We need to do more because, uh, honestly, it is unfortunately a smaller population of people who are involved in this behavior. If we protect them and stop them from engaging in illegal behavior, we get them the support and treatment they need and get them into SRO and supportive housing. That's how we affect change. And then we need to do all those things. What do you think of the mayor's plan? The devil's in the details. We need people who are dangerous to themselves and others off the streets of New York. The question will be what, that, what that'll what look like. Obviously, we want to make sure that we get the people the help they need. So once they're off the streets, what are the next steps? Do they get housing? Do they get a social worker? Do they get a place where they can take their meds and get the support that they need? If they don't get those other pieces, then it won't work. So we have a comprehensive plan, and I hope the mayor's plan will include all these comprehensive steps, and I think we can get to where we all want to go. Manhattan Assemblymember... Harvey Epstein. And finally, a federal judge on Monday threw out three counts of bribery and fraud brought against former New York Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin. The charges relate to his unsuccessful run for New York City Comptroller. The judge said, although a not-for-profit run by a real estate developer who was a Benjamin campaign contributor got $50,000, there was no explicit corruption. The former lieutenant governor, who resigned shortly after the indictment, still faces two other charges for falsification of records. An attorney said those charges are still quite serious and could carry a significant sentence. (music) 
And that's the news for Monday, December 5th, 2022. The news is produced and anchored by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.